I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every Hi everyone, Kristen Sinato-Walker here. We are on with Dr. Alex Nasiri. He is a board-certified physician specializing in interventional behavioral medicine, addiction medicine, and EMDR trauma-focused care, as well as anesthesiology. He is the founder of Reach Wellness and Recovery, which is a brain institute providing mental health and addiction recovery services. But this is not a commercial. We're going to just chat like we always do on these shows. So Dr. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Christine. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit, you know, since we mentioned REACH, tell us what it is, and then we're going to get into the opioid epidemic and ketamine and all kinds of interesting things. But first, I think our listeners need to know what REACH is and why you started it. Well, I started REACH several years ago as a result of having to go through uh, dealing with the mental health and addiction issues of several loved ones, and uh, including the suicide of, of two people very close to me, um, mm. secondary to their addiction and uh, mental health issues. And what I saw in the industry as a physician, I saw that the level of care and that quality clinical care that that includes spirituality, traditional medicine, modern cutting-edge medicine, psychosocial therapeutics, as well as coaching and things like that, were not available to patients. And so I actually reached was really the product of um, my own loss. And something beautiful came out of it in the form of creating this really top-tier, you know, high uh, and concierge product for patients who really need top-level care that includes everything that they could potentially need. Because oftentimes, you know, as the case of my loved ones, they would go just to a therapist, a top therapist, or or go to the doctors and get a prescription for an antidepressant, and there was no true conversation or analysis of what all the underlying issues are and how to approach every single underlying issue from a 360-degree point of view and a lens that looks at someone from all the different facets of their life, whether that would be the medical, biological, the psychological, the 
sociological, the demographic, the ethno uh, religious angles, the you know the uh, the physical nature, their relationships, their family background, um, all of those things really neat, and including spirituality and like what their life's goals, ambitions, and dreams were, like the coaching part. Like I really felt something, some kind of pro, you know service needed to be created for patients who wanted to approach your life more than from just rather than just a medication alone or a psycho a psychotherapy uh, format alone. I think they needed something more. And so REACH was kind of born. And at first we were a professionals program just for um, treating professionals, uh, physicians and attorneys and executives mm-hmm. who had addiction issues. Okay. Uh, because those were my loved ones who had passed away from that. And um, and then we blossomed into something much more comprehensive. So how is it for you to, you know, when you go into something like this, you have why you, you know, have all the degrees that you have. You have why you, you know, why you went into this field. And then you become a business owner on top of it, which stretches your brain in an entirely different way and adds different kinds of um, concerns from you know what your your degrees are in so how how has that been for you to have you know both roles there navigating being a doctor and staying on top of the latest and greatest treatment and then also navigating running a business yeah so it's interesting because you know as a physician you're never really trained in running a business or even a practice and i just and you know when something is your passion project and something comes to you in the form of uh, an evolution in your own personal life rather than a byproduct of a business degree or a school degree or rather than a, just a next career move. Um, when something is, you know, comes to you in, in the form of an evolution of spirituality, personal loss, it really becomes more of a passion project. And there is that balance between trying to make something fiscally viable and keeping the quality really top-notch. And uh, one of the things we decided early on was to actually not work with insurance. And the reason is we didn't want insurance companies or any kind of pharmaceutical companies telling us how to mandate care or what kind, uh, you know, what is in the best interest of the patient because we wanted to have that autonomy. And the other thing I did is I, you know, we have a team of over 30 people, including other physicians, addictionologists, psychiatrists, uh, pain docs, psychologists, marriage and family therapists, uh, coaches, uh, meditation, yoga instructors, you name it, we have it. But what I, one of the things made sure to do is hire the very, very, very best people because I wanted the care to be so high quality that the care itself would be the marketing force behind the practice because mm. there is no um, there is no advertisement or marketing as good as word of mouth and when people right. have a, a positive experience and you know we don't really do any advertising at all um, we basically just everything is by word of mouth other doctors who know of our practice refer to us you know, psychiatrists who have complex patients refer to us, um, attorneys, family law attorneys, uh, hospitals, um, 
psychologists, people who want their patients to have the very best care refer to us. And that is an honor. And because of that, we kind of, you know, we're able to be able to work outside of the insurance model and just use our reputation, which is based on high quality care. Now, the interesting thing is that when the executives come in and the CEOs of companies come in as patients, um, I'm able to connect with them because I can say, I understand the pressures of running a business. And I, right. it, it really allows for a peer-to-peer kind of therapeutic alliance because I can speak in their syntax and vernacular and feel some of their pressure and pathos. Of course, I don't run a Fortune 500 company. But at the end of the day, when you understand what the pressures of supervising and making yeah. sure a practice or business has to stay afloat, it really builds a really strong rapport and relationship. And once you have that strong therapeutic alliance with the patient, they respect what you have to say clinically. And that's True. really where it's at. People want an authentic relationship yes. with any provider. Yeah, they want to feel like you understand what they're going through and you're not just looking at them like they're a specimen. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And that sounds very cliche. But, you know, and we see this in the world of politics and in our day-to-day news cycle, you know, people gravitate to authenticity. People gravitate to someone who's real, who can share their experience and say, you know, this happened to me. It may be different than yours, but there may be some common overlap. Because when you withhold, as a physician, when you're completely guarded, when you withhold, when you put up your own defensive mechanisms because you're too ashamed or embarrassed, or uh, to share a little bit of your own life, then you're basically telling the patient to do the same thing. Yes, exactly. And so how- you know what? Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. You, you go ahead. Well, so I feel like, you know, one of the first things to do with, with any patient encountered, one of the first things I do is bring down their walls. Let them know they're in a safe space. Let them know that their journey is unique to them but is not a, a solitary journey that other people have walked it, including myself. And I, I want to help them. And there are things that I can help them with. And there are limitations to what we can help them with. But at the end of the day, they have an open forum without free of judgment, shame or guilt so that they can share completely. And we can have a collaboration between the patient and the clinical team to chart a path forward. Now, of course, the opioid epidemic has laid waste to class (laughs) because everyone, no matter where you come from, um, is struggling with this epidemic. So how have you taken what you just said and put that into practice with patients coming in that, you know, are struggling with opioids or what they've done outside of, you know, beyond opioids um, to treat their addiction issues, which... And also um, realizing that some of them are coming to you with an addiction issue, but it's really um, being driven by self-medicating a depression mental health issue. Oh, absolutely. And to be honest, it's like you said it so eloquently. It has, the opiate epidemic has removed any distinction of class, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic Every single family in America knows somebody who has an opiate addiction, someone who suffers from opiate dependency. 
we are now at a point where last year alone, I think 75,000 people died of opiate overdose alone. That's Mm -hmm. more people dying in a year than at the peak of the AIDS crisis in the 80s. Yep. I mean, that is how severe this epidemic is. And, you know, what's kind of bittersweet is it's brought addiction to the forefront and slowly moving the stigma of addiction and realizing that it is a diagnosis. It is a medical diagnosis, no different than asthma, hypertension, or diabetes. But at the same time, it comes with that removal of the stigma comes with, with such a high cost. And at the end of the day, there is still a lot of stigma associated with addiction and mental health. And that is why it's so important that at the minute a patient has contact with, with the clinician, with the physician, that, that those walls come down immediately so that the stigma, shame, and guilt are immediately removed from the safe space, which is the physician's, mm-hmm. off, physician's office, and that the patient can then openly discuss, hey, I have, I've been using my Vicodin and my Percocet. I can't afford it anymore buying it on the street. I've turned to heroin, you know, right. and then the physician can start the questions of, that revolve around why. Why are you using? Which usually often has to do with anxiety, with PTSD, with depression, childhood sexual trauma, adverse childhood events. And that conversation can then be had and a treatment plan can be created jointly based on a better understanding of what the physician's underlying, I'm sorry, the patient's underlying needs are. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the the different treatments that are out there, especially for treatment resistant depression. And the reason why I switch from, you know, talking about addiction to over to this is, you know why, but for our listeners, you know, there's so much, there's so much of separating. In fact, I used to I used to have people in the treatment center field say to me, well, why would I want to be on your show? It's about mental health. And I would, I don't, I never have that anymore, but in the beginning, and I would look at them and say, because it is, addiction is mental. about mental health. <laughs> mental health. You're running That's a treatment right. center and you just asked me that? What? So there, there's been that lack of education there. I don't feel like that's the way it is uh, as much, even if, you know, it's very little now that that's the way it is. But I moved to depression because you do have to treat the underlying reasons why there is addiction for some people. And there's a lot of um, back and forth about what are the new medications that really help? What are the ones that don't help? You know, what what are things, you know, you're at the forefront of it. Are you seeing that really it are are good treatment protocols for someone who is really struggling with depression and nothing has helped and they've tried everything. Well, I'd like to answer that question in segments because I think you hit on multiple things. I think part of the reason that, you know, people didn't want to be from treatment centers and addiction and recovery programs didn't want to be on the show is they didn't understand that it was in the, that it is a mental health issue. Slowly right. that's changing, but the underlying reason for that is that they were very focused on a 12-step model, a doc, you know, that, and became very dogmatic around 
exclusively addiction. It can only be solved from 12-step, no medication assistance, no psychological assistance, that it's all about spiritual and social model. Well, as we've grown and evolved and realized that addiction is a diagnosis, that it is part of the umbrella of mental health and behavioral medicine, really, for that fact, that 12-step, a social model, cannot alone, um, you know, create wellness and recovery because mm. there is no clinical component. There is no medical component. There is no... Um, you know, biological or physiologic component or diagnostic component within the 12-step model. Now, Great. that is not to discount the value of, 12, of the 12-step model. There are definitely merits about having the buoyancy of fellowship and having <laughs> a support system. But if you're not treating the underlying diagnosis, which is oftentimes major depressive dep depression or bipolar depression, as you were mentioning, then you are doing a disservice to the patient. So now we've Absolutely. evolved to, yeah, so now we've evolved to a lot of treatment centers are trying to, you know, have some psychologists or therapists on board and occasionally have physicians on board to help them as well. But, you know, the problem remains that the patient turned oftentimes to drugs and alcohol because they, like you said, they had treatment-resistant depression, meaning they went to talk therapy, they didn't get better. They went to their primary care doctor, put them on Prozac, they didn't get better. They turned to drugs and alcohol to kind of escape their depression or anxiety disorder or PTSD. And um, or, or even Or even they've tried all kinds of different medication. They've tried, you know, ECT, they've tried so many different things and nothing has helped them. And so they're just like, what I'm, you know, they're, they just feel completely helpless because they feel like they've become a drugstore. Right, right, exactly. And so actually that's one of the reasons a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists refer patients to me um, mm -hmm. or for, you know, when their patients have these treatment-resistant depressions, anxiety, or PTSD, and sometimes chronic pain patients as well, um, is for more cutting-edge modalities that have come about. And one of those is ketamine infusion. So ketamine is this drug that we've used in the operating room since the 1950s um, as anesthesiologists. You know, I, I've used it for almost 20 years, and right. um, it's a wonderful drug. But in low sub-anesthetic infusion doses, like so you basically have an intravenous infusion for approximately an hour, you are able to um, create a breakthrough in depression. And I have had patients who have been in their 70s, tell me they've been suffering from depression for 50, 60 years. They've tried all the SSRIs, SNRIs. They've tried antipsychotic medications. They've done the talk therapy, all the different modalities of therapy. And they've done even inpatient residential treatment. Yeah, they've, they've, they've the meditated on a mountain in India with a yogi, and that didn't help either. Like, they've literally tried right. <laughs> They've done everything. And I mean, I could read you testimonial letters, thank you letters a patient sent. And they said, my God, I have, this has changed my life. For the first mm. time, I feel joy. Now, I preface with that, that this is not a medication you, that you just dispense out to any patient. No. It should be for really the treatment-resistant patient. It needs to be done by a physician who's hopefully trained as an anesthesiologist as well as mental health, at least an addictionologist, or um, it needs to be given in an intravenous infusion format, 
slow infusion only. It should not be given orally, intranasally, or given intramuscularly because none of the studies have done, that have been done have been done in any format but intra, in, as an infusion. And because it has a high addiction potential, it's not something that you just want to give patients to take home with and, you know, in a compounded pharmacy in an oral form or intranasal form because the dosing is very variable. You know, basically, if you give a bolus dose in the oral format or intranasal format, you're not getting that steady stream of a concentration as you would get in an intravenous infusion over an hour in a controlled setting when you are on um, and running EKG, uh, vital signs are being done, your blood pressure pulse oximetry is being checked. You want to be in a very controlled setting by that is being infusion is being given by a physician. It's being monitored appropriately and it's not being given in a bolus dose because part of the issue is there are risks with it. It can increase heart rate, blood pressure. It can cause a laryngospasm. And when you give it in this bolus dosing in an intranasal, intramuscular, or um, oral version, you're not controlling the patient's dosing. And it's not being, um, you're not dose titrating it to the patient's symptoms and feedback minute by minute. So when you do an infusion, you're having a running dialogue with the patient and checking on them and making sure that the dose is appropriate. Because I've never really had two patients who've had the exact same dose, require the same exact titration. So when you do something intravenously, you can really titrate it to the patient and you can actually kind of navigate through some imagery work and meditation, almost a transcendental meditative moment that creates the breakthrough for the PTSD and flashbacks and the depression, which is what's beautiful about it. Um, and people need to realize ketamine infusion is not the same thing as special K and going into a K hole. There's a, again, there's a stigma around the medication when it's used illicitly on the street versus when it's done in a proper clinical medically monitored fashion. Um, so I have some, you know, strong beliefs around how it should be dispensed. I'm more conservative, but at the same time, I do believe in breakthrough modalities, and this is definitely one of them. I know the big four pharmaceutical companies are rushing to do the intranasal format and get it on the, so on the market. I'm so glad you brought but that I, up. Yeah. But well, I'm a little hesitant to, to go to a format that is not going to be optimally beneficial for the patient and comes with a high risk profile. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I stand of the uh, better living via pharmaceuticals is fine with me because I will not live without my prestique. <laughs> um, exactly. And then on the other hand, I also ha see the ugly side of it, um, which, you know, is we could do a whole 12 shows on that. So explain those to, for people who don't know, if, in your opinion, how is a safe way to administer ketamine and what are typical um, experiences 
the reason why I ask is we'll get emails from people saying, you know, they want to do it, but they're afraid that they're going to like not be able to go to work for the full time that they're doing these treatments because they're going to just be loopy or not know what's going on because it makes such a shift and sort of a readjustment to life. So I want to dispel some of, and of course, everybody has a different reaction to medication. So, you know, someone else could take Prestique and say it made them have horrible reactions where with me it's been wonderful. So I, I want to put that disclaimer out there. But I guess I'd like to dispel like the overarching, overarching, let's edit that, Joe, for sure, the overarching um, sort of confusion around what someone experiences and how they handle their regular life while they're going through this kind of treatment. Great question. I mean, and part of it is really first working um, from uh, – top to bottom, you know, first the criteria, who meets that criteria? Obviously, uh, you want patients who've had refractory treatment, meaning they haven't been able to succeed with other medications or treatments, and they're being referred by another doctor or psychologist who feels that the patient really needs something more. Um, then is the patient medically cleared? I mean, if you have a history of cardiac issues, if you've had heart attacks, if you have arrhythmias, if you have had a stroke, well, then we need to actually first make sure you're cardiac cleared, meaning that um, because it can have effects on the heart rate and the heart, we want to make sure that it's, you know, you are a proper candidate for this and you're not being put at additional risk because an elevated blood pressure can cause a stroke or cardiac Uh, or increase in heart rate can cause a heart attack. And if you have those histories, then maybe it's worth having your cardiologist first clear you. Um, and it's so important what venue you're having this medication delivered and how it's being delivered. So when you do intravenous infusion, basically you're going to a physician who's trained extensively with ketamine and managing the cardiac implications that may arise or side effects that may arise. So some patients develop nausea. Yeah, so you're sitting in a chair, there's a physician and maybe somebody else there. This is being put in to you intravenously and your heart rate is also being monitored. This is not just, oh, I'm gonna go to a ketamine clinic, walk in and they know nothing about me and let's just start, you know, giving injections. No, no, that would be gross negligence. So really what you wanna do is the pace, so let me walk through how it would be. You come in, you first have an assessment and evaluation by the physician who would be um, administering the ketamine. Um, At that point, if once you've cleared all, you know, your psychiatrically and psychologically appropriate for you, cardiac-wise, you've been cleared, you're not going to be in a, you're going to enter a specific ketamine infusion room. And what does that room look like? It's a very comfortable room that has a recliner. You're going to be connected to uh, to what we call medical monitors. That includes a blood pressure cuff, an EKG, a pulse mm-hmm. ox- a running EKG, a pulse oximetry, um, oxygen, um, you're going to have basically all the things that you would do in almost like an operating room monitoring. Anytime you receive an anesthetic, which is what ketamine is, you should be um, medically monitored continuously throughout. Then okay. an IV is started. So basically you have a, you know, an IV catheter started and then connected to an IV bag of fluid and the ketamine is mixed in that IV fluid bag and the, the drip is started. So it's a slow drip that goes about approximately an hour. 
Um, it kicks in in about five to ten minutes. You start feeling a mild association, a feeling of relaxation. You feel, um, you know, a lot of patients say they start having memories of the past, but they're reprocessing those memories and they're understanding. They're able to look at things from a different light, which is what the key component is. What really ketamine creates the breakthrough is how they perceive things finally changes. So mm -hmm. if you had a traumatic experience from childhood and it has been debilitating you throughout your life, you being able to have a fresh look at it and seeing things from a different angle lets you not be traumatized and debilitated by that memory. So it so neutralizes it, so a little, the memory. A little teeny bit in, the, in a way how EMDR is supposed to help you reprocess things but do it from a non-traumatized place. I know they're right. completely different things, but am I on the right? So kind of similar in the sense okay. that we're neutralizing. But the thing is, and I'm actually an EMDR trained physician myself, and I basically advocate most of my patients going to therapists who do EMDR. So mm -hmm. one of the things I love about this is ketamine works so quickly and instantly that it kind of jumpstarts patients and then it makes the EMDR process or the ISTTP process, which is also another way to treat um, uh, trauma, much more, uh, I guess the word would be faster. So the therapist okay. and psychologist can now do their job um, much more, they can do it quicker, they can uh, delve deeper because the patient's guards have come down a bit and uh, the patient's able to not be uh, triggered by their memories so they can okay. start doing the EMDR work and stuff faster. Now, the process, just to wrap up how the infusion works, after you receive an infusion, it's kind of like a wind down um, towards the end. Uh, you know, personally, I kind of, what I do is I work with the patient. I make sure that the symptoms are, you know, they're able to tolerate everything, that they're cardiac-wise, they're stable, they're medically stable the whole time. If a patient has elevated heart rate, if a patient has nausea, those are the things that you really need a physician who knows how to manage those things because you want to have other medications that can um, be able to, you know, give, be given intravenously to manage that, which we always do. Um, you want to make sure the place is equipped to manage basically uh, what we call a crash card and it says has emergency medications to treat any kind of adverse effects. These are extremely, extremely rare. Fortunately, I know I'm, I'm very cautious with how I, for, uh, you know, administer these medications and never had a complication ever knock on wood. But, <laughs> um, you know, anywhere you go, you really want to make sure they're equipped to handle anything and that uh, they are able to handle side effects nausea, uh, hypertension, um, uh, tachycardia, how are they managing those things? So, you know, those require other intravenous medications so oftentimes and you want a physician who's capable. You know, you don't want to go somewhere where they have five rooms running and they have a yeah. nurse just putting stuff in a bag and running it open and no one's doing that. The other thing I like about is that interaction with the patient is, you know, the patient is able to converse with you during the infusion and oftentimes is telling you about their memories and what's going on and you can do some meditation work and some you know guiding uh the patient on how to navigate make sure they feel safe secure as they're going back into memory lane and um you know then you synchronize that care with the psychologist obviously afterwards and you let the patient process some of that a after the infusion but okay. the good thing is the where the fatigue you know the 
the feeling of relaxation and drowsiness that you get wears off in about 15 to 30 minutes after the infusion. So it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, it's not something that puts you, you have to stay in bed for several days. Okay. Now there are, um, and those studies have always been done in a series of six. So over about two to three weeks, you get a series of six infusions. And then you see how long the patient needs to, wait before coming back for the, their next infusion because this is not permanent gain. That is the one drawback is that ketamine does not change your brain permanently. Okay. So most patients stay between three weeks and four months is when their next infusion comes. So think about it kind of like Botox. You have to go back and get Botox every six months or so or every okay. four months, whatever it is. Um, but, but they're, but they're not necessarily, yeah, they're not necessarily having to take other uh, medication while they're doing this, possibly. No, no. For so depression, you really I mean. To, well, so the, this is the thing that is kind of a double-edged sword. Patients get such immediate relief and get such breakthrough. Oftentimes, I see patients wanting to self-stop all their antidepressant and mm. anxiety medications because they say, oh, I feel great. I don't need anything. And I always tell them, Hey, 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 hold on. That's a conversation mm -hmm. we need to have with your regular doctor. Okay. And if we're going to do that, we're going to slowly taper off your other medications over several months because we want to be able to monitor your symptoms. So what happens is because ketamine works so instantly and brings relief so quickly, patients get a little overconfident. And I tell them, look, mm -hmm. this is a tool in the toolbox. You still need to do therapy. You still need to have your medications, but we can start tapering maybe on your medications if you show um, that you're sustaining your improvement in symptoms and you're still engaging in therapy so that there is continuous monitoring going on over an arc of treatment. And it's just one part of it in your toolbox. And patients okay. get very confident. And I tell them, hey, yes, this is a big breakthrough. It is an amazing medication modality. But it, you have to also realize that there's always underlying issues that need to be processed and treated. So the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the addictionologist, everyone is participatory in this care. You can't just think that you can rely on ketamine alone. Okay. Good to know. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that. I mean, it's it's definitely the popular topic right now. And um, can you explain before we close today's show a little bit about how um, ketamine is utilized in terms of pain management? So actually ketamine is being used now in the hospitals and post-op uh, pain for people who don't, they don't want to give opiates to it. It's a slow, even slower, lower dose infusion than what we do in the psychological, for, for psychological reasons. And um, so the infusion is usually a longer infusion that's given, but it's really for people who have refractory neuropathic pain, low back pain, mm -hmm. um, pain that, you know, uh, phantom pain syndrome, patients who really have not been able to get better with traditional pain modalities. Um, okay. It's a wonderful drug to treat pain. So, you know, what ketamine really is, is ketamine is the dawn of a new wave of medicine to treat mental health. You know, um, psychiatry and psychology are really have been, have, have their origins based in, you know, um, 19th century 
behavioral health. And what we are seeing is the dawn of interventional behavioral medicine, meaning that interventional behavioral medicine is where you, yes, you take this old school psychology, psychiatry, add addictionology, add these cutting edge modalities. There's a whole new wave of psychedelics being uh, introduced into the care of mental health. And then you have this physician who's an interventional behavioral medicine physician who integrates the entire team, which is kind of what I do at REACH, is you integrate the psychologist, the therapist, the um, spiritual, the coach, the medications, the psychiatric medications, the pain medications, the the cutting edge medications like the ketamine and the NAD infusions, and you really create an umbrella treatment that is much more interventional so that the patient is not just coming in, getting a prescription, leaving, then right. seeing their therapist separately. So it's an integrated and both an interventional behavioral medicine. And we're seeing really the dawn of this change in mental health, which is bringing, um, you know, bringing behavioral health into the new century. Good. Oh, my gosh. It's about time. <laughs> yeah. Things have changed. The old school Freudian therapy, you know, it's outdated. You know, patients don't want to sit on the sofa and have somebody ask them, so tell me how that makes you feel. Oh, how are you doing today? Patients really want interactive therapy. They want the EMDR. They want the ISD, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. They want the... They want the coaching. They want executive coaching. They really want people who are interactive. And, you know, that's something patients need to ask themselves. You know, they don't want the physician who just prescribes medication. They want to go and have a relationship that is interactive, that is, you know, and it's tough for the clinician because that requires a higher skill set for the clinician. It requires more training. It requires more hand-to-hand combat, being engaging, interactive, being on your toe. But you know what? Patients have Google now. Patients Google things. They come in with their own set of questions and ideas. And as clinicians and as physicians, especially who are overseeing the, you know, the umbrella of mental health, we have an obligation to meet the patients where they're at. The patient needs more than just a script. The patient needs more than just a nod on the, you know, when right. they ask you how they're doing. Patients need more. They need engagement. You know, they need to know that there's an authentic relationship there. And the clinicians have to realize that it's time to be more intera- interactive and uh, engage at a higher level. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Alex Nasseri, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. Absolutely. It's delightful. <laughs> Listeners- thank you so much. You can find out more about him by going to their website at www.reachdetox.com. That's R-E-A-C-H detox.com. And thanks for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. 
And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. But never without good intentions I heat up and act on my emotions Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight. Good boy.